Genesis 2, 7 reads, The Lord God formed a man, a human, literally, dust of the earth. What is human? We are dust of the earth. Dust. Here's an ancient Bronze Age text. And it seems to agree perfectly with what Neil deGrasse Tyson says, that we are dust, we are stardust, we are part of the universe. (laughs) We are in this universe. The universe is in us. So here we get to this place where where, um, science tells us that every atom that is in us was somehow forged in a star that exploded at some point. And faith describes us how a personal God made us dust of the earth. These are decidedly not in conflict, right? It's, we're made from dust, stardust, dust of the earth, same thing. And yet, and yet, I don't know about you, but there's this tension here, right? There's this tension that you can feel, and perhaps it's not in what is said, but in how it's said. Because um, he says, we are stardust. Neil deGrasse Tyson says, we are stardust in the highest exalted way. That's different. That's not a statement about what something is made out of, but that is a qualitative statement. That's a statement that goes beyond like the measurements of science, right? So I could say, my shirt is made of cotton, but it's different if I say, this is cotton in the highest exalted way, right? That's a different statement. So right here, there's this, it sounds almost religious, spiritual, Now, of course, um, this is nonsense, right? Science, by definition, cannot be religious or spiritual. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't say those types of qualitative purpose, meaning statements. It doesn't even try to measure that. It's not designed for that. It It tells us how big and how high, and it measures things in the physical universe. It doesn't tell us about purpose, meaning, beauty, goodness. These are not under the microscope of science. And yet, the tension remains. So for thousands of years, prophets and apostles have struggled to give us a vocabulary for our humanity. Like, what does it mean to be human? Um, and, and if you go through the scriptures, you'll find language like, we are formed from the dust of the earth. Like, we are part of this universe, right? But then it says God breathed the very breath of life into us, that there's something immaterial, something directly imparted from God is, is in us, that we are made in the very image and likeness of God, that he set eternity in our hearts, that we are more than mere animal, we are human. And yet we are animal, and yet we are dust of the earth. So, so we have this... Um, this built-in tension that we, when you look at us scientifically, we look just like everything else, and yet we feel, feel this thing that makes us, calls us out to something spiritual, something religious, something that says we're not just stardust, but we're stardust in the highest exalted way. And since the time of at least Darwin and Freud, scientific discoveries have forced us to reframe how we think about ourselves in, in every aspect. So in a few short generations, if you go back prior to the scientific revolution and you ask a person, what is a person? Like, what does it mean to be human? We are glorious image bearers placed into the temple of God to have dominion over all creation. We are the highest element of all creation. The very center of the universe is what humanity is. And then you move ahead and scientific discovery after scientific discovery Now you ask someone, what does it mean to be human? We're described as the third 
chimpanzee, uh, chimpanzee, that we're just one over from the chimpanzees, that we are, in the words of Carl Sagan, we are now a pale blue dot hurling through space. There's this stark difference of like whether we are positioned to be something special, unique, or whether we're really just an accident. So this past week I watched this time-lapse video of 10 minutes time-lapse of the entire history of the universe, 13.8 billion years, okay? It's kind of cool. You should check it out. And you watch that each second goes 22 million years. Boom, boom, boom. And you see like bang, and then suddenly, you know, particles start forming, right? And then they, they, they collect together and, and form stars, and then the stars explode, and then it cools down to, to other types of things, to planets and things like that, and then finally life comes, and if you, in that 10-minute time frame, humans are a flash, in the last second. That's it. And it starts... To create what I would say is an existential crisis, right? Who are we? What are we? What's our place? So psychology, social biology, neuroscience, cosmology, there is hardly a field of science that has not challenged, redefined, and at times upended our core assumptions about what it means to be human. We now live in a world where people seriously do not know how to answer, who am I or why am I here at all? The most basic questions, the, the, the reason to get out of bed in the morning, we don't know. So today I want to, um, I want to view these answers not just for, through a scientific lens, although I hope that informs us. Today, this is a conversation of faith and science. So I want to go back through the history of some of the church and look back through the scriptures and talk about these two things side by side. And I want to start with this guy named Irenaeus. To just prep where we're going in the next seven weeks. I got, there's a 150 about A.D. There's a, a, a bishop, a leader in the church named Irenaeus. And he writes these words. They're really helpful. He says, The glory of God is a man fully alive. And the life of man is the vision of God. This is, this is one of those quotes that is worth meditating on. Worth chewing on. The Hebrew word Hagah, right? You, you want to eat on this one for a while. The glory of God is a man fully alive. So if you want to know... God, the meaning of the universe, purpose. Look at a human. Fully human. Fully alive. And the life of man is the vision of God. That, that our connection with how we see God and how we see ourselves, they cannot be separated, Irenaeus says. That if you want to know what God is like, you have to know what a human is like. That our task as humans is fundamentally to just be fully human. Now, isn't this odd? There is no other creature in the universe that you have to say, your job is to be fully what you are, right? There's no lion out there being like, oh, I just feel like in lion. I'm, I'm not quite a lion today. Like, what does it mean to be a lion? They don't ask those types of questions. And yet, um, humans, every day, we struggle with that question, who am I? Why am I here? If we don't have purpose, we literally kill ourselves. Irenaeus seems to think that it's possible for someone to go through their life and not be fully alive. That in a way that cannot be said of any other creature in the universe, humans have the ability to be something 
other than we were created to be. To not be what we're supposed to be, to not be fully human. Today, I want to introduce this topic by asking this question, what does it mean, not just to be human, but what does it mean to be fully human? What does it mean to be fully human? And today we're going to kick off this series called Human, in which we ask, like, how do we unapologetically hold to everything we know about science? Unapologetically. Like, our lives. Look around. How many of you own a cell phone? Huh? How many of you drove here in a car? How many of you have glasses or contacts? How many of you have had surgery before? How many of you have had a vaccine? Like, you go through the list. Like, we are unapologetically, our lives are founded upon Hundreds, if not millions, of scientific discoveries and innovations. That's what our lives, our understanding of life and reality is built upon this. How do we unapologetically accept that? And still struggle with this reality that science cannot answer. What does it mean to be fully human? So our text for today is Psalm 8. Psalm chapter 8. As it turns out, that these, these very modern questions are questions that are also very ancient. So um, the book of Psalms, let me set a little context here. The book of Psalms, if you're not familiar with it, is just like if you've ever been to a church that has a hymnal. We don't. We show all of ours on screens. But a church that has a hymnal or, or a prayer book, that's what the book of Psalms is. It's God's authorized version of a hymn book or a prayer book. So Psalm 8 is an early Iron Age addition to the hymns that we find in the scriptures. If you, if you go to Psalm 8 and you want to say, like, what is this psalm about? You'll notice that in the psalms, a lot of them have these little headers or superscripts at the top. These are not original to the text. They're not divinely inspired by God or anything like that. We don't believe that. But what they are is hundreds of years later, when all these psalms and songs and hymns and prayers were written, there's an editor. He took them, collected them, and uh, editors, and then added in, put them in a certain order into five books of the psalms, and after collected them into a logical order, added in superscripts to tell us a little bit about why they placed this psalm, where they placed it, and how it functions. And so when you open up your prayer book or your hymn book, you know, oh, this is what this one's about. So before we jump into these big questions today, I, w- I want to look at this superscript, and maybe this will give us some insight into how we approach this question, what does it mean to be fully human? That's going to be the question. So it reads like this, to the choir master... According to the Getith, a psalm of David. So it's to the choir master, which, um, what does that suggest? It's a song. You guys are brilliant. And it's according to the Getith. What does that mean? Yeah, you don't know. Um, nobody knows for sure. Like, Getith, it's, it's, a, it's an odd word. It's from the word gath. Some people think that Gatith is like a, like a, a lyre or a harp that was made in Gath. So you, like, you think Spanish guitar, French horn, right? So this could be the Gatith. You've got to play this song in the Gatith. But um, more recent scholarship suggests that it has a metaphorical meaning because the word Gath is not just a place. It's also the word for wine press. So some people think, and I, I tend to be convinced by the, uh, by the evidence, that Gatith actually means that it's a song of the wine press, which is a metaphorical way of saying it's a vintage song. It's a song that you know by heart. This is an oldie but a goodie. So this, this is a song to the choir master according to the Gatith. It's a song. You know this one by heart. Everyone knows this, right? 
And it's a psalm of David. David, of course, if, if you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, he's one of the biggest characters in the Old Testament, lived around 1000 BC. He's a shepherd turned giant killer. Here's a, his face famously made by Michelangelo there. And uh, an adulterer, hence the, the crazy look in his eye. And a king, and, 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 let's not forget, a singer-songwriter. By almost any possible measure, he is the most famous singer-songwriter in the history of the world. I'm not joking. His songs are still sung 3,000 years later all over the world. Who can compete with that? So we have, let's put this together. Psalm 8 is a song, according to the Gittith, it's a song that you know by heart by this man named David, right? This is going to give us some perspective on this. A song that people have been singing for 3,000 years. Now this, this picture should inform, should inform maybe uh, how we read this text and how we think about these answers that we find in the text. You see, um, a song, you do not read a song the same way you read a textbook, Songs, their lyrics are not written primarily to communicate data. Oopengangam style. Bop, 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 and boom. Tutti fruity. All Rudy. Tutti fruity. Or my personal favorite. Are we human or are we dancer? My sign is vital. My hands are cold and I'm on my knees looking for the answer. Are we human or are we dancer? Now, what does that mean? No one knows, and nobody cares. Why do we put up with this gibberish, and not just in a few obscure songs? Like, you go through the, the Beatles, some of the classic, I am the Eggman. They are the Eggman. I am the walrus. Goop-goop-goop. <laughs> right? These are the classics. These are the songs you know by heart. These are the songs of Gatith here. These are multi-platinum songs. Now, why in the world do we put up with that? Why do we listen to this on repeat, play this over the airways? Why is this so popular? Why is Ubum Gangnam Style the number one viewed video in the history of the world? Dear Jesus! May I suggest to you that music is not meant to communicate facts or information, that's why. Now, it's true, there are some songs that are meant for that. We're teaching our kids the 50 nifty United States, you know. Alabama, Alaska, Arizona. Okay, so, but I bet you, I bet you, not one of you listened to that while on the treadmill this week. Because that's not what songs are for. That's not why we listen to music. They can function that way, but that's not what it's about. Music is something you're designed to feel. You enter into it, you experience it. It captures you in a way beyond words. So, we've talked about this before. Aristotle, his analysis of love and friendship in the Nicomachean Ethics is arguably the best like, philosophical description of love and friendship in the world. It, it is, but when you're lonely, I promise you, none of you pull out the Nicomachean Ethics. You want to be with Lady Annabelle. It's a quarter after one. I'm all alone and I need you now. You want to be rolling in the deep with Adele. Now, now, why is that? Because songs, even stupid songs, have a power. They take us somewhere emotionally, physically, and dare I say, spiritually. 
So Psalm 8, it contains theological data, it does, and we're all, we should learn something from it, we should. But this is a song according to the Gatith. And if all we get out of it is some like more data points about what it means to be human and theological constructs about God, we've missed the best part. This is a song that we need to sing, we need to feel, we need to experience it. So just before we even look at this, in some ways, you don't have to go any further to say, this tells us something deep about the question, what does it mean to be fully human? And the answer, that question cannot be answered in a scientific textbook. David says, if you want to know what it means to be fully human, listen to this song. And he grabs his heart. Verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. There's two words for Lord here. They're, they're different words in Hebrew, both translated Lord in English. The, the second one the, in Lord with not all caps is just the word for Lord or master, great one or boss or the one who's in charge because God is in charge of all things. But the first one, all caps, when you see that in your Old Testament, that is God's personal name, Yahweh. We don't actually know how to pronounce it because it hasn't been pronounced for 2,500 years. But we think that's what, and and if you ask, what is Yahweh? What does that mean? It means I am. And if you ask, what does that mean? We're like, I don't know. And that's the point, that this God is beyond your mind. Whatever you think, whatever, any construct you have, any space-time construct, anything in this universe that you try, any box you try and put him in, he doesn't fit. That he, just that word, that name Yahweh is to blow your mind. Yahweh, my God, my Lord, the one who's over all things, how majestic, how awesome is your name in all the earth. Now get this, this is a psalm that is going to be about, just trust me, centered around the question, what does it mean to be fully human? And yet David thinks that the beginning of a contemplation of yourself should begin not with yourself, but with God. That if you don't have an answer to the question, who is God, you will likely not find an answer to the question, who am I? You have set your glory above the heavens. Now, David did not have a telescope, but he did live in an era where there were, you know, no light pollution, right? So he, he never could have possibly imagined what we, the things that we know, the things that we've seen from the Hubble telescope. But he, he, he knew just from the, the pieces that he could see that these were brilliant. This is amazing. He never could have imagined that there are a hundred billion galaxies in each galaxy. Galaxy has more than a hundred billion stars in it. So that there are whatever the number is, like a quintillion or something like that, stars in the universe. He never could have imagined the things that we can now see with a Hubble telescope. And yet, even, even just looking up with his naked eye at the night sky, he's blown away that that moment, that moment of seeing the stars leads to, get this, a deep sense of awe. That the answer we're looking for might not be an intellectual answer, or at least not purely. That you have to sit in awe of the I am. 
You know what that, uh, like, this is one of those things you either get it or you don't. Like, I still remember um, those moments that I've had in life where you climb, literally climb to the top of a mountain and look over at the Alps. Or look up at the night sky or being out on a boat away from the, the shore and it's the night and you look up. And at that same moment you feel so small. And get so alive. David says that's the moment, that's the moment that we need to possibly begin to understand this question. You have set your glory above the heavens. And then he goes on and says, Out of the mouths of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And this is one of those complex things. We remember when we read this that this is a 3,000 year old like early Iron Age text. So there might be some confusion here. We're not exactly sure what this means, but it's important to note that right before this in verse 1 and right after this in verse 3, he takes us to that place of all before God. Verse 1, you've set your he- the glory above the heavens. In verse 3, when I look at your heavens, that David is lost in that moment. And when he's lost in that moment in front of God's presence, something comes over him, this question about, about how God reveals his strength. And it brings to mind something about the very weakest, simplest, most powerless people, babies and infants, that somehow the smallest children, the least educated, the weakest among us, somehow... They're able to experience God and know who they are sometimes better than those who are most educated, most powerful, strongest. Isn't that bizarre? That there's a way of knowing God that is not reserved for the brilliant, for the educated, for the wealthy. That you don't need a telescope or a knowledge of quantum physics to understand who you are and whose you are. The Apostle Paul describes this in Romans 1 when he says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, that it's right there, hidden in plain sight, and yet for some bizarre reason, while we know what it is, while, while babies can grasp it, there are some who become foes of God, who are opposed to this knowledge of God, who reject it. And so... Let's talk about this guy. When I was back in college, um, I, I used to spend a lot of late nights in the library. And uh, sometimes I would actually stay there until, like, one night I, I stayed there so late that um, they closed the library and no one ever came and got me out. So I, I realized, oh, they don't care if I'm here. And so I started making that a tradition, actually. And um, it was one late night and I was um, doing one of the things that I love to do, which is going book to book and finding different things. And uh, I was up on the fourth floor and it must have been one, two in the morning. And I stumbled upon this book by Leo Tolstoy called A Confession. And, uh, and I knew Tolstoy, right? He wrote War and Peace, Anna Karenina, considered by some to be the best work of fiction in the history of humanity. I mean, he, he's brilliant, a sheer genius, known for like plumbing the depths of human experience, motivation, the heart. And, but I saw this and I thought, what is this? It's like a small book, less than 100 pages. And so I, I, started, I sat down on one of those stools between the big aisles. So kids, let me explain. Um, 
there's this place called Libraries where they actually put books. All right, so I'm sitting on this library stool holding this book, and it's like 2 in the morning, and I start reading it. It's riveting. It, it goes through his spiritual journey where he started as a young man. He was uber successful. I mean, by uber successful, I mean he was like one of the most successful people in the world at the time. Friends with the most elite people, the, 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 the richest, the wealthiest, the smartest people in the world. He was personal friends with them, and it grew and grew. And yet he found that as he plumbed uh, the questions of life, he was brilliant, he was famous, he was wealthy, um, he was married to a beautiful woman, he was successful by every possible measure, and yet he could not find a reason to live. As an aside, if you've ever struggled with, like, doubts, or like, why in the world do I live versus die, this is a must-read. So, so Tolstoy, he's this intellectual giant living in this era of new science, right? This is um, right after the time of Darwin, and, and everyone's, like, getting on this boat of a kind of a, a scientific materialism, and everyone's trying to find the answers to the meaning of life in the universe through science, and, and he's riding that wave. He's literally talking to the, the biggest scientists, philosophers, leaders of the world at that time, and yet he finds, as he goes from one to the next to the next, none of them could it give a satisfactory answer to the most basic, most human question. Why should I live? And so literally he comes to this crisis where he's ready to kill himself. Has everything in the world and is ready to kill himself. And the thing that stops him is he meets these peasants. And he finds that these peasants who know nothing of the philosophy and the reason and the art and everything that he knows, somehow they manage to have a reason to live. And so he finally humbles himself and asks them, like, what is this? And he discovers their faith. And he discovers his own faith in the process. So out of the mouths of babes and infants... You have established strength because of your foes. Maybe, maybe that's what David's talking about here. That maybe, maybe it is through the weak and through the nothings and through people who humble themselves. And all it requires is an openness and a humility to know the greatest secrets of the universe. Maybe that's it. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? This, um, this is going to require a bit of Hebrew here. Um, the word for man does not suggest that um, God's not mindful of women. All right. So let's, uh, in Hebrew, let's go Genesis uh, chapter 1 and 2. God creates a man. And he calls him Adam. Adam, which means human, right? Presumably related to the, the word Adama, which means dirt. So human that's made out of dirt. And, 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 but it's not good for man to be alone. Even though everything's great, there's something wrong. He's missing something. Man should not be alone. So who does God make for him? Eve, right? And Eve means living. So... So living and human get together, they have a kid. Do you know the first kid's name? So they have Cain, and they have Abel. 
And if you translate that roughly in Hebrew, Cain kind of means something like stood or awesome or winner, right? So there's Cain. He's the winner. And then you have Abel, which is like the noise of a breath you'd make when you're really frustrated. <sighs> oh, we got the other one. We got Cain. Cain, have you met Cain? And, uh, Abel. <sighs> right? Hevel. Right? But then what happens? God accepts his, this weakling's offering instead of his, and he, he can't, Cain can't stand it. So he's like, I can't stand this. I cannot live with him being better than me in God's sight. So what does he do? Kills him. Kills Hevel. And then it says terrible things happen through the line of Cain. Terrible things. Like humanity just begins to unravel. Unravel. It's terrible. They now, they now have all the power of being made in the likeness and in the image of God. But they use it for evil for themselves. And then it says in the next chapter, Adam and Eve had another child. And his name was appointed or chosen or selected. His name was Seth. Seth. He's the appointed one. And then Seth, he became the father of Enosh, which just means humankind. Now, isn't it interesting? This reads very, very different when you read it in in translation versus transliteration. Human and living have winner and... And then he dies, so they have another one. And it says when they have Seth, they have another son in the image and likeness of Adam. So these human is made in the image and likeness of God. Now Seth is made in the image and likeness, carrying on this image directly coming down to the line of Seth. And he is the father of all humankind. Now right here, what is Enosh? What is humankind? What is Enosh? That you're mindful of him, the son of Adam. Human. That you're, you care for him. So right now, the, the, David, when he goes out and looks at the night sky, where does his mind go back to? Creation. The very beginning. He's thinking right now of how all these things trickled down through the universe. And he, and he sees Cain and he sees the atrocious things that humanity can do. And he sees the hope, though, through Seth. There's Enosh. There's another child who looks more like God, looks like the way humanity is supposed to look. So when David steps out under the vast sky, he comes to this deep sense of awe, and it shakes him to his very core, and he asks these deep, deep questions like, who are we from the beginning, from the core? Who are we? What is Enosh, that you are mindful of him, the son of Adam, that you care for him. Verse 5. And yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And yet, and yet, and yet, though, though humanity is both terrible and wonderful in Cain and, and eventually in Enosh, yet God made humans in his image and likeness. He gave them glory and honor and a privileged position afforded no other creature in the universe. Humankind, Enosh can relate to God, can please him, can enjoy him in a way that no other creature can. No aardvark, no mongoose, no shark can enjoy, can reflect God in a way that no other creature can. And this, this literally reads, um, you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. It says literally, you made him a little lower than Elohim. If you don't know any Hebrew, you might know that word. Do you know what that word means? It usually is translated God. 
So in the beginning, Elohim made the heavens and the earth. In the image of Elohim, he made them. Male and female, he made them. Right? Elohim is usually translated God. It literally could be translated, get you have made him a little lower than God. This is one of those words in Hebrew, kind of like the uh, English word trunk. You could be talking about the back of a car or the front of an elephant. Context decides it, right? So this is one of those where, where it could be either heavenly beings or it could mean God. Here, translators have gone with tradition because it sounds a little presumptuous. You made us a little lower than God? But that seems to be exactly David's point. This is outrageous. That God made us a little lower than himself. So I want you to feel the tension here, the full tension of humanity that David's looking at right here. He says, humans are so full of sin and destruction, so capable of evil, and so full of love and creativity and goodness. Humans are so fragile that like the tiniest bit of fat can break loose in your vein, get stuck in your brain, and you can die like that. And they are so powerful and ingenious that they can actually take your heart out and put another heart in. They can actually modify your genes. They can build skyscrapers and and transform the world. Humans are the only creature on the planet who could destroy the planet. And humans are the only creature on the planet that can save the planet. Wonderful and terrible, beautiful and hideous, so broken and so glorious, so weak and so frighteningly powerful, so human. So you have made him a little lower than God, crowned him with glory. You have given him dominion over the works of your hand. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beast of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea that he's saying... We are made out of this universe. Yes, we are the stuff of this universe. We are in this universe. The universe is in us. The universe is in us. But we are also entrusted with the universe. We do not just respond to our environment. Our environment responds to us. It bends at our wills. We are, we are the one creature who, like God, can imagine a future... And create it. Who can imagine a world without poverty and actually do something to create it? Who can imagine a world where, where, where vaccines overcome sickness and actually make it happen? We can imagine a world without war and actually do something about it. But we can actually do the other as well. Both possibilities are here. That in human imagination, we have good and evil, love and hate, courage and fear. We have this God-like power. We have been given dominion over all things. And the song ends as it began, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. So I want you to see what David sees when he looks at what does it mean to be fully human? Like, what does it mean? What are the implications for this? And we see that the first thing that you need to, he wraps his mind around is, Oh God, our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, that there is a God, and you are not it. That humans are under God. That to be human is to be vastly under God. That he is the I am. 
And we are so fragile and so weak, so momentary. We could die at any second, and he is eternal. We seek goodness. He is goodness. We seek beauty. He is beauty. But the other side, so, so the starting question for the David is, is um, if you don't know who God is, you can't possibly answer the question, who am I? But then he also says, but we are also above the animals or creatures. That we are caught in this tension that to be human is to not be, is to have an aspect of God but not be God. To have an aspect of animal, but not be fully animal. That, to be human is to live in the tension that no other animal seems to live in. That we are between God and creation. The breath of life and the stardust, soul and body, eternity is set in our hearts, and yet we are destined to die. That in that tension, we begin to understand what it means to be fully human. That David wants us to feel the great pride that the universe has been placed in your hands and the crushing humility that you will never be God and you will die. Back to the dust of the earth, you will return. So I uh, was um, reading that great theologian, Brene Brown. I don't know if you know her. She's actually a researcher, not a theologian at all. Um, I don't even know if she's a believer. I don't know. But she, uh, she, she has this, uh, she's a researcher, social worker, does a lot of stuff on shame, vulnerability, things like that. She has this talk that she gives there where she describes um, uh, people in her research data. She found that there are people over here who seem to be flourishing. The word she uses is wholehearted people. As um, this is the word of Irenaeus, fully human. And then there are people over here who seem to be crushed and saddened and shameful and not living in fullness of life. And she said, you know, what the, the difference when you separate the data points of people over here who live in a cloud of shame and do not seem to experience the fullness of life and those who do seem to experience the fullness of life, it is not what they've done necessarily. It's not how bad they are. That being over here, being wholehearted, being fully human for her, in her language requires two things. An acknowledgement of your weakness, your brokenness, your what we would call biblically sin, and a deep sense of your worth at the same time. That you have to know I'm completely jacked up, capable of terrible things, and I am deeply, impossibly, unimaginably loved more than I can possibly fathom. And I heard that and I thought, that sounds like Jesus. So the author of Hebrews will say it this way. Hebrews chapter 2, he says, um, when we think about, he says, uh, there, there's a place where someone has testified. He just pulls this out. What is mankind that you are mindful of him, son of man that you care for him, you made him a little lower than the angels? He quotes right out of this, this passage. He says, There's a place where that is said in the Bible, and putting everything under them, he explains, God left nothing that is not subject to him, yet at present we do not see everything subjected to them. You know what he just said? He just said, you know what? David talks about this glorious place of humanity, that we are over the whole universe. We are glorious. And yet we don't really feel it, do we? And then he says these words, chapter 2, verse 9. But we see Jesus. So we feel this great tension of who we could be, who we're called to be, and who we're not. But we see Jesus, 
who is everything that a human could be. And through him, we experience that we are truly broken and fallen, but he loved us so much, the author of Hebrews goes on to say, that he died for us, proving that we are, that we are completely broken and fallen, not who we should be. We are unimaginably loved. And in that intersection, we find our true selves broken and loved. I have a lot more to say, but I decided that rather than try and close this with a lengthy explanation, it seemed ironic. I thought instead we'd close it with a song. Let me pray, and the worship team will come up. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would right now do what, um, what only you can do, and that is speak to our hearts, that you would take us to a place of complete awe and brokenness, that you would, Lord, that you would allow us to, to feel that weight that David felt so that we could be at a place where we can begin to answer this question, what does it mean to be fully human? That your awesome presence would overtake us. That we would know how broken we are and admit it and confess it and yet be utterly confident in how loved we are. And somewhere in that find you and find ourselves. Pray this in Jesus' name.